This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. And with brought to you by Pelgrane Press. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... Running Games Online. The Shooting of George Brown. More Horror Masterclass Highlights. And Rewriting FIFA. Did you know that both of us, Ken and Robin, have written books and games for Atlas Games? This month, they're featuring products by us on sale. We're so honored. Atlas Games is doing a special for our listeners only. Use coupon code KENANDROBIN23, that's spell out A-N-D in Ken and Robin, to save 20% on your games and books at atlas-games.com. Like Robin's action-packed feng shui and conspiracy-drenched over the edge. Or Ken's mini-mythos series of Cthulhu-themed children's books, like Goodnight Azathoth and Clifford the Big Red God. So who writes our banter in these Atlas ads? Our good friend Michelle Nephew. Sometimes I think that power goes to her head a little. Like last month where she had me singing Christmas carols for Weird Little Elf? Yeah, I kind of noticed that. Yeah, this month Atlas Games is running a sale on products that two of us have written for them. But what does that have to do with me repeating, Michelle is a goddess and we bow before her greatness? Her script cues are even worse. I can't stop hitting myself. Ken, just because it's in the script notes doesn't mean you have to actually slap yourself. It's it's audio. It's a podcast. Our listeners can't see you. I don't feel so good. The things we do for our listeners. But at least this month, they're getting 20% off on books and games written by the two of us. Just head over to atlas-games.com for your exclusive discount on Feng Shui, Over the Edge, and Mini Mythos products. Then use the coupon code KENANDROBIN23 at checkout. The ping of the dice-rolling subsystem, the click of the miniature being uploaded, the crunch of Doritos in your microphone, that's disgusting, and the sounds of Peter Frampton coming alive over the MP3 player attached to the system welcome us into an online edition of The Gaming Hut. I guess they're all online in a way, but this is an online online. We're deep into the matrix now, thanks to beloved Patreon backer Mark Kevin Hall, who requests a summary of how to run RPGs online. I know that you, Robin, have mentioned it in passing, but a segment on the tools available, successful techniques, and any special requirements of the medium would be very helpful. Right, because I think lots of folks jumped on during the pandemic, and some people have maintained that habit, and uh, some people were doing it way beforehand. Yeah. Now we have both options. And Ken, I think you wound up doing it a lot more than I did because for non-gaming related reasons, I only ran a few sessions with my regular group. And of course, I've run a bunch of uh, playtests, including the one for the the new unannounced thing that I'm working on. And I've run various video versions of The Yellow King for uh, streaming purposes. And uh, I've also, you know, run an audio game to be broadcast on a podcast. So... I've mostly just been doing gumshoe or the other storytelling thing that I'm not talking about yet. And so I use a pretty basic set of tools. I don't really use one of the, the major platforms. So my tools are some form of teleconferencing thing, which uh, Zoom. I have an access to Pelgrane's corporate Zoom account, so I can mm-hmm. easily run games using that. 
or I'm sure there are all sorts of other alternatives there, plus a Slack channel. Uh, you could substitute uh, Discord, I guess, for that if you have people who are more comfortable with Discord, and also a Google Doc, and that plus a number of visual handouts to put into the Slack channel, or you could paste them into a Google Doc, whatever works best for you. Those are all basically all the the tools I've tried to use. What have uh, you used sort of platform-wise? Well, I was running two games during uh, lockdown. I was running my Monday 13th Age game, and for that, we very much used Roll20. It was the big dog at the time. It remains the big dog as far as I know, certainly with its merger with uh, drive-through it'll it's dogness will only biggin it works great for a dungeony type game the dice rollers you know native to 13th age if you've got a game system that's already loaded on there much of it will work when we ran scum and villainy which is the blades in the dark star wars version or star wars in quotes version um we found that less of the system was automated than perhaps we would like you still have to sort of draw your own clocks and fill them in yourself there there's less automated to it but it's still pretty simple to do and again the dice rolling is is certainly covered we liked having a separate audio channel uh, over the audio uh used in roll 20 so we would also be on discord in our case uh doing the audio uh, which was also where we would pop sort of out of game nonsense out of game nonsense becomes a thing a lot in online play i think or depending on the group it can. And then the videos of, you know, when I, when the uh, player characters are invading some, you know, city in Hellenistic Afghanistan, I could just find an archaeological dig map of that city, throw it up and say, there we are. Where are you coming in? That turned out to be super helpful. And then obviously you can, you know, just draw a dungeon on the, on the graph the way that you can anywhere, which we certainly did as well. And so for a positional tactical game, 13th age, Pathfinder, Dungeons and Dragons, a lot of those, you know, uh, Twilight 2000, um, anything like that, something like uh, roll 20 or its competitors is probably the, the minimum requirement. You have to have something like that because you can't theater of the mind that by contrast, my Fall of Delta Green game ran in Slack. Everything was native Slack. Sometimes we would uh, power up a, a Google Zoom or a Google Meets, rather, and uh, do it through that. We did not have a corporate Zoom account, so we uh, did it through Google Meets, and there was some chicanery by which we got to do that. And it again, it worked just fine, and we had Slack up for the uh, visuals and the out-of-character discussion and sending notes to the GM and all the other great things that you need to do. And then every now and again, if there needed to be a here's the warehouse, I could throw up a warehouse plan, but I didn't need to do that every time because, again, Gumshoe is, the combat is not as uh, tactically rigorous as it is in skirmish games like Dungeons & Dragons. Right, so that was, just creating a sense of the environment so people right. could sort of picture it. Which and then sometimes that was like, you know, a news photo. You know, here's, here's a picture of uh, Lake Point Tower in 1968 when it opened, and for that, yeah, I could put up a, a plan of Lake Point Tower if I needed to, but they didn't like move their little characters around. They just saw what it looked like and could use that to visualize the the setting. And so were you sometimes playing with just audio and not video of your players? In the 13th Age game, we all did audio because the video soaked up too much bandwidth. Not everyone's system was robust enough. And so we did, you know, the audio on Discord. We did the visual was Roll20. No one saw anyone and it was all, 
you know, play by radio, I guess, is, is what it might have felt like. With the Fallen Delta Green game, we definitely had faces up and everyone could look at each other, which I think was better for a horror game than doing it all on audio would be. Again, because of the nature of a 13th Age of Dungeons and Dragons, so much of your time is spent in the sort of tactical mode, not necessarily immersed uh, in roleplay or needing emotional cues from other players. You know, obviously, in-person for my group and for me is a million times better. It's why we rushed right back into in-person just as soon as we were vaxxed and everything was over. But doing it in audio was was adequate for what it was. And certainly, it was a great good fortune that we were playing a game that was so tactical during that time. I think that was, you know, luck of the draw, but it was good luck for us. Playing with my own group, I actually struggled because some of the players wanted to play audio only and others wanted to be or were willing to be on camera. And I think if any role playing online that I do going forward, I'm just going to need people on camera. And that is sort of an issue because Mm -hmm. some people don't want to be. It's a a kind of an ability issue. But in terms of being able to read the room, I just, uh, maybe if everybody is all just audio, maybe I would adjust to that. And I can certainly see if there's, you know, a D&D style battle map for everybody to focus on that that is the thing because it's, you're hoping that an F20 game will do all the work for you of keeping people at engaged or mm-hmm. at least as engaged as they're going to be by that. You're right. Yeah. But really being able to track everybody and know who was getting spotlight time and who was engaged and who was disengaged. I, I found that challenging. And I also, one thing I also find challenging is that when people are in their own home environments, instead of in your gaming room, they can be called away by all sorts of other things. And mm-hmm. so if someone, someone's kid needs attention or somebody else interrupts a player. I found that really hard to recover from. And um, maybe it's something that I would have gotten better at over time. And I I should say that it seemed to me like the players were still really engaged and, and, you know, they were responding emotionally to everything, but I felt that I was not quite getting the amount of, you know, uh, emotional juice back to know how to really adjust to things so I, I guess I would also want to, a tip I would get is to find a way to get people as, to, to agree to be 100% focused on what that is. That's something people, even in a game room, generally aren't always. Mm-hmm. And I sometimes feel like I have to bust people on because even if you're running in a room and somebody reaches for their phone or, or comic books, I find that super distracting and find it hard to, even if they're not on stage, to then direct the energy to whoever is on stage. So I, I don't have a tip to solve that. That's more of a, an issue that I'm putting out there. Well, I think as with anything in gaming, it is going to come down to individual comfort level and individual, you know, just interpersonal qualities. And some people are natural role players in that sense. They, they love getting into character. They love being that. Some people will never do that regardless of where they're sitting. They can be sitting on your lap and be distant from the game. Do, do not do that, people. This is not a recommendation. It was a exaggeration for comedic effect. And I think that that absolutely is true in spades over uh, the internet. And some people are happy to be on screen. Other people are less happy to be on screen. And some and it varies, right? Someone may be having a bad mood or a bad hair day or um, they're under a lot of stress and they just don't need the extra stress of looking at people through a screen, which does. I, I think this is science, Robin vampirically suck the life out of everyone involved. I mean, I think (laughs) 
that's just known. And a lot of people, even if they're playing vampire, maybe they don't feel like they want that, you know, in their existence, you know, other people batten on it and it's just going to be individual gaming group to individual gaming group. And I guess some of it is, you know, were you doing a lot of video chatting before maybe is the, the break. So the TikTok kids, you know, they may have no problem being on screen. They'll be like, the only hard part is they're on screen for like four hours instead of two minutes, but they're happy to be out there. And it's us. And old I think fogies. you hit on something by mentioning TikTok, which is that I think that games where people are consciously performing for an audience where they're being recorded, I think they tend to bring more of their focus. Yeah. And I guess where online does fall down is the sort of more casual game group thing where part of the social contract is we can't get distracted and do side stuff. And uh, you were mentioning the sort of side chatter element of that. And I think in a way, if you can encourage people to do that, which I think is generational partly, that gives them another way to be focused on the game and not something else. Although, yeah. you know, that doesn't help if they get called out of the room. Yeah. The, I mean, the, the, the thing about it, I mean, and this is true in every format it comes down to you, the GM, making the game interesting enough that the players want to engage. And if they don't, you know, no technological solution or physical proximity is going to unscramble that. So, so what are the extra things that we can do in this format? One thing I did find myself doing was a lot more images and handouts than I would rely on in person or paint things with words. Oh, yeah. The visual language of the GM has to step up. You have to throw up handouts like you said you have to do you know battle maps if there's a game that requires those but also just you know you find a really cool looking uh dragon uh, and you make that the dragon they're fighting that's fun it's exciting in the uh 13th age game there was a lot of finding like you know drawings of indian demons from indian art that i could throw up as my demon that they're fighting I will say there there is no IP law in your gaming group, perhaps. And so if you have decided that Kate Blanchett is the necromancer, there she is in all of her necromantic glory. And, and that's good fun. So you have uh, that as a, as a vibe and it, it feels more, you know, sort of immediate and immersive. If you just throw the image up and the players react, as opposed to saying the necromancer looks oddly like Kate Blanchett, which does not necessarily help anything at the table. And I found myself using a lot of visual cues and clues, even when we were doing the scum and villainy, which is a more, I would say, a, a somewhat more theater of the mind game than certainly than 13th age. But I still, you know, I went to Wikipedia and I threw up all kind of images of various Star Wars uh, baloney. And then, you know, the NPCs could be beloved YouTubers instead of dull English character actors. So that was good fun. It's a different mix. And some of that mix has carried over into my tabletop which was always played with, you know, computers open, but now post lockdown, there's, I think, a, a thicker strain of, of images coming from me, the GM, than there used to be. I would say that. Right. Well, I think that is as close as we can come with our own personal experience to uh, uh, getting people started with that. And I think essentially there's just a bunch of stuff that you need to relearn and find a new balance. And I guess I would have better advice if I'd gotten to do it for longer. Right. But on that note, I think it's time for us to uh, head on over and see what waits for us in the upcoming hut. The skies above New Olympus are patrolled by caped crusaders. 
but these superior beings are far from heroes. They wield their powers with reckless disregard, serving the interests of corporate overseers and silencing those who oppose their will. You are Clara Keenig, investigative journalist for the pedestrian newspaper. You intend to prove that the privileged superhuman elite do not yet hold a monopoly on justice. Welcome to Alter Egomania, the newest setting for the Gumshoe one-to-one system. Featuring a quick start rules guide, printable problem and edge cards, and a starter adventure. Alter Egomania contains everything you need to run a one-player, one-GM game set in a universe of corrupt superheroes. Exclusively available in PDF. The exciting format unaffected by global paper shortages. That can't get stuck in customs. That's waiting for you right now. At the Pelgrane Press web store. Or drive through RPG. The busts of great heroes and villains lowering down at us, the flags pinned against the wall, the faultless academic paintings welcome us into a stern history hut. But, oh, the plinths are all made of maple, and the flags have maple leaves on them, and the academic paintings have got a lot of birch trees for some reason. We're in a Canadian edition of the history hut, thanks to beloved Patreon backer Jeremy French, who alerts us to some exciting Canadian history. And first of all, I think it's a canard that there is no exciting Canadian history. Oh, just you wait. Uh, just I wait. <laughs> There's an overall lesson here. No, this this is uh, interesting Canadian history because it involves a shooting of a fellow named George Brown of the awesomely named Clear Grit Party. And when I uh, began, I was looking at the, the script note and it said nothing else. And I was thinking... Is this like the Donner Party? Is the Clear Grits? Did they go and settle Edmonton at some point? And then there was an affray at arms. But no, it's a political party, which makes this differently exciting. And he was shot thanks to Canada's uh, wise and forethoughtful conservation of first names policy by a guy named George Bennett. So just to keep things clear, we're starting with George Brown, the shoot E, who turns out to be the important George in this history hut. So, Robin, right. take it away. Okay, so so there is going to be a broader lesson about Canadian history when we get to the end. So, George Brown is a big deal in uh, Canadian history. He's a balding, mutton-chopped, very stern-looking fellow. And right now, if you go around uh, the city of Toronto and beyond, there's all sorts of campuses for George Brown College. And he made a big impact on Ontario and then on Canada. Uh, he was born in Scotland in 1818. His father, after a business setback that caused him some reputational damage due to some uh, speculational losses, he decides to leave Scotland. They initially head to New York in 1837, but in 1843, uh, they move to Toronto and they found a one-sheet newspaper, The Globe, in 1844. They had an earlier paper just a little bit before that, but when they decide to get into politics, they change it to the globe, as previously called it, the banner. And they are part of the reformist tendency in what was originally Upper Canada. After a while, people start looking at maps and seeing that Upper Canada, Ontario, is lower down on the map than Lower Canada, Quebec, because, of course, when they got named, it was like the more important one is the one where they speak English. Oh, don't tell them that. They finally rename Ontario. No, no, it's, just, it's the upper it's the upper reaches of the St. Lawrence River, wasn't it? Yeah, and, and so Ontario 
for a while becomes Canada West up until... <laughs> Which legitimately sounds like some dumb corporate synergy name. Right. Because there's only two... Can there's two. There's still two Canadas and none of them are what we currently think of as Canada. They're Ontario and Quebec. So he then becomes involved in the Reform Party in what I'm going to start calling Ontario, even though George Brown would not know what the heck I was saying. And as you might guess from the name Reform, and of course there are other Reform Parties in other uh, colonies and in Britain itself is by the standards of that day, the left-leaning uh, party, which in that point meant uh, supporting universal male suffrage. So not just property owners, free trade with the U.S. This is the, at the time, the reformers are the pro-U.S. people. They want more accountability in government because uh, Ontario is still kind of run by a clique of original establishment uh, wealthy families who don't want accountability because they're already running things. <laughs> and there's also a move to challenge the power of the Church of England and the power of the Church of Scotland and to break off with them and have local equivalents of those that are not organizationally controlled from across the sea. Um, originally, Brown is associated with a reformist, the Clear Grits, are an even more fiery version of the reformist strand. There's sort of a schism. The reformists try to prevent the clear grits from breaking away, but finally they do. And ultimately, George Brown winds up sort of an unofficial leader of the clear grits. This gets to the awesomely named part. The word grit here means essentially what it did today, to have true grit, to be gritty, to be tough and able to stand up to the uh, other side, well, where do you get the clear grits part? Well, one of the other worthies of this movement said that we need men who are all sand and no dirt <laughs> to be <laughs> the clear grits. So that's the nickname of that. And even today, although less so today than even like 20, 30 years ago, the federal liberal party still kind of had the nickname the grits. So this is the, the kind of origin of the two major parties that are still at play in Canada today. George Brown uh, becomes a politician, runs for various seats in Ontario. He uh, winds up being Premier of Canada West for four days. Uh, premier on either side of him, aside from those four days, is someone who turns into his nemesis, and that's John A. Macdonald. Uh, the reason John A. Macdonald and George Brown wind up at loggerheads is that George Brown serves on a commission to investigate corruption and misconduct at the Kingston Penitentiary, a penitentiary that's, you know, its successor still exists today. And Brown exposed McDonald and his buddies. McDonald didn't like that. He counter claimed that uh, uh, Brown was uh, sort of corruptly smearing him. And so uh, they were not pals. So, uh, and John A. McDonald, of course, goes on to become the first uh, prime minister of Canada and uh, did so as the head of the Conservative Party. So that's dust up between them even before Confederation. And as things go along, that as good reformists, George becomes a advocate for a wider Confederation, not just of the two Canadas, but of the Maritime Provinces. And he's uh, an attendee and participant in the Charlottetown Conference and the Quebec Conference, which people know just how exciting Canadian history is. Well, they're, they're all perked up now because, of course, those were the lengthy meetings that led to the formation of Canada to Confederation in 1867 and uh, 1874. And all this time, uh, Brown is still a newspaper man. He's still running the globe. Uh, he becomes a Canadian senator in 1874 and is considered a worthy eminence and 
Uh, He's so trying to break the typesetters union, apparently. <laughs> well, not the first or last liberal to um, uh, run his company different from his mouth. Well, I, I don't think union. Ref- this is this is 19th century liberalism. This, there's yeah. no pro-unionism at all. It wasn't <laughs> hypocritical. It was just not part of the agenda. Right. Right. But labor relations do come into this story at this point. I, I wanted to, to lay down that that trail of grit, if you will. Right. So on March 25th of 1880, George Bennett comes into the story. He, five years earlier, started uh, working in what was called called the engineering department, uh, which I assume means the presses of mm-hmm. uh, the globe. Uh, which at this point is is a still a broadsheet. It's one sheet of paper that you fold up, and the innovation that makes the globe a little bigger is is on the way. George Brown is already planning it, but he's been let go because uh, he started out as a good worker, but he's been showing up drunk constantly. He was off work while he was uh, jailed for failure to support his wife, and Bennett gets it into his head that he needs a certificate that says that he worked for the globe for five years. He goes to the head of the press department. The guy tells him to go jump in a lake. And so he wends his way into George Brown's office. George Brown has never laid eyes on this guy before and treats him with the uh, hauteur that a uh, high muckety-muck in Ontario uh, would direct toward a, a visibly drunk worker he doesn't know shoving a paper in his face. And he tells him to get out of his office, to go back to the other guy. And he says, I already talked to that guy. And at this point, Bennett draws a gun. All the accounts make a point of saying that George Brown, with his superior strength, guided the gun away, but he didn't guide it away quite far enough, and he got shot in the leg. Now, we may notice from period depictions and, Mm -hmm. you know, games that we happen to set in the the pre-antibiotic phase that we forget today about gangrene and infection of wounds, and we treat it somewhat cavalierly. Well, it turns out that even people who lived in that era treated it somewhat cavalierly, right. as did Brown, because he was joking afterwards, oh, ho, ho, I've been assassinated. And one of Brown's opponents, a guy named Goldwyn Smith, wrote to uh, John A. MacDonald. Not going to get to assassinate anyone with a first name like that. Yeah. If he, uh, Bennett, had used a horse whip, perhaps the wave of public indignation would have been less universal, because uh, people got really upset that there was a, a shooting of a prominent political figure, even though it was not for particularly political reasons. And uh, even fellow newspaper men got all up in arms and Brown was regarded as a hero for surviving this shooting. However, he does start to get a little sick. He gets feverish. Nonetheless, he decides to attend a shareholders meeting of the uh, of the company. Uh, he's wheeled in on a day bed to conduct this meeting. But things get worse and worse for him. There's uh, gangrene sets in, there's abscesses. And on May 9th, he dies. And so uh, what this is, Jeremy, is an illustration of any Canadian historical story that you look into becomes more boring the more you drill down into it. <laughs> so it's it, the opposite of American history in that right. way. It's like, oh, it's an assassination. Oh, no, it's a disgruntled worker and he died afterwards of gangrene and it didn't have any political significance or have anything to do with this name of the clear grits or any of that stuff. And Brown, as I mentioned, he still leaves a big footprint in history that has nothing to do with his being assassinated. I actually used to live like a block away from his historic house that's a heritage site in in Toronto without even knowing that he had died from complications of gunshot wound. At any rate, the Globe continues until 1936 and continues to evolve with newspapers over the time. It then merges with another paper called The Mail and Empire, which itself is too 
newspapers that had previously merged, and it becomes the Globe and Mail, which even today is Canada's big national newspaper. And in a reversal of ideology is actually the establishment business oriented paper. And well, so that's, sort of, that's what having an angry typesetters union will do. It'll shift your newspaper politics, I guess. Yeah. Well, I think it was the merger that did that. Yeah. Right. And well. as I mentioned, a college was named after him in 1966. So can we make this interesting? Can, like if you went back in a time machine, you could warn him to mm-hmm. be slightly more polite to this guy when he shows up. Or just be there with his certificate saying, there you go, George Brown. There you go. So if you were there, it would still be completely uninteresting. Uh-huh. I talked to the magic beaver and said, is there any, you know, magical or mythic component to this? And he said, no, I don't cotton to shootings, but I would not condone that. And I said, well, magic beaver, is this one of your mystic enemies? And he said, I don't have mystic enemies. This is Canada. I looked up paranormal in 1880. Nothing. So this is just... Like, except for the clown fireman riot. Have we covered the clown fireman riot? I don't believe that we've covered the clown fireman riot. I feel like I would remember. Well, I mean, we know, unless it was part of the Mounties. Did the Mounties muster up the firemen, or am I confused? No, no, this is, Mounties were there. There would have been no clown fire. If someone wants to ask about the clown fireman riot, that might be a counter. Well, even that one, I think. That might turn interesting if we study it. Right. All I have, Robin, is that the fact that they both are named George B., Right, that it's a a mirror doppelganger sort of a situation. Obviously, this is some sort of magical rehearsal for the assassination of James Garfield a year later by Charles Guiteau. Guiteau's name begins with G. Garfield's name begins with G. They're both, you know, politically ambitious figures. Gangrene starts with G and also plays a big role in that story. Right. So again, this is a situation where the the bullet is initially thought of to be survivable, and it turns out it is the gangrene. And in Garfield's case, the idiot doctors that, uh, that kill him. And I, I feel like maybe there's something going on that you have a, some sort of American magician doing a practice ritual on George Brown and trying that out before they magically hocus up an assassin for President Garfield. That's literally. It would serve him right for advocating free trade to just get leveled as just collateral damage by some sort of American magic. Yeah, and one can perhaps argue that there needs to be a blood sacrifice. Like you have to, you know, in the old days when you built a bridge, and the old days meaning a made-up time by Victorian anthropologists, you would kill one of the workers and put him into the keystone of the bridge so that the bridge would have a ghost in it to protect it from other ghosts. Maybe the Globe and Mail, there was some need for the Globe to become, to survive down into the modern day, and they you know, had to bury the founder in it metaphysically, right? By having him shot in the leg and the, and the blood, you know, running into the ink, perhaps in in some alchemical fashion, the degree to which this is clearly grasping at straws tells you. um, (laughs) Canada uh, appreciates your effort to make, make its history interesting. Yeah. But I mean, you, you can do it, but the bigger question is why are you doing it? Given that America's right there. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and is full of interesting stuff in 1880. But the whole point of Canada is that we're boring and sensible and all the nutty stuff happens south of the border. Right. And speaking of borders, I think we're entering the border between this segment and another one on the other side.
The best of Ask Figeln is now available at DriveThruRPG. All issues of Phoenix Magazine since 2013. That's spelled F-E-N-I-X. Can now be grabbed in special English editions. Containing stellar gaming material from our own Ken Height. And such other recurring stalwarts as Graham Davis. And Pete Nash. Also find Dice, the gorgeous photo book celebrating that classic gaming accessory. And Freeway Warrior, the series of post-apocalyptic choose-your-adventures by Joe Dever. And if you speak Swedish, not English... That's Swedish, not English. You can delight in every original issue of Phoenix. And the new Sagebrush and Six Guns role-playing game, Western. How do you say slap leather varmint in Swedish? Uh, oddly, Google Translate refuses to help on that. That's the best of Astfageln on DriveThru. Keep this podcast from succumbing to the threat of unclear grits by joining such doughty backers as Darren Hennessy, Linda and Mike Schiffer, John Burgess, Ariel Celeste, and Jeffrey Pittman. So time again for Ken and Robin Recycle Audio. We're going to dive back into the horror masterclass that uh, Ken and I and Gareth Ryder Hanrahan did at uh, Dragon Meet in December. And uh, this time around, I'm going to... Uh, uh, as the event went on, people started to talk more quietly into the microphone that was supplied to them by the PA person. So I'm going to restate the questions uh, so that you can hear them uh, clearly. So the first question is about maintaining personal relatability in a tale of cosmic horror, you know, because it features abstract entities far beyond our understanding. Well, I, I think the, the question is, what is the person's stake in that, right? What is the relationship between a human being and all of those incredible abstract things that you uh, just mentioned? So what is the emotional consequence to the player character of encountering those things? And that's, so the relatability is never to the cosmic and the alien. You don't relate to Cthulhu. He gets mad when you do that and stomps you. But you do relate to the professor who has unwisely decided to research Cthulhu. Yeah, I mean, in my experience, presenting the cosmic or the numinous or anything extra human is best done with you on your A-game in terms of description that opens the player up to thinking about it and then something that happens in-game to give them a stake. And that can be, oh, this professor has you know, uncovered this and I feel bad for his you know, insanity or his nephew or whatever. Or it can be, now that I've realized this, I've had this moment of realization, and now the tendrils are coming up out of the geologic rift that opened up and revealed to me how much older and more terrifying the situation is. Generally, if you're in a cosmic horror game, there are lots of things that can go wrong with players. So if you have not established an NPC that they care about, they will care about, for example, their own chirality. And when you say, oh, you're left-handed now, that will establish the weirdness and the uncanniness without necessarily needing you to also have a golden-haired little child that is being eaten by, you know, a, a flying polyp or something. Then the next question was, how do you differentiate between horror, between premise and system, with adjacent genres and subgenres? I mean, genre is, is where do you find it in the bookstore? That's irrelevant to your game, ideally. I mean, you've sold the game on a premise. And the premise may be we're playing a dark urban fantasy, as you say. We're playing evil changeling or something. But then you find the moments of horror in the game and you play towards those. But you are then able to put in, you know, urban whimsy or you have a different palette to paint from. But 
the advice whether you're running horror for one scene or one multi-year campaign is the same because you're still trying for that emotional connection and that reaction and the techniques are all the same and the question is is that the the schwerpunkt the, the core of your game experience or is that just that really scary dungeon we went through and, and that I think is sort of the question for you and your game group to work out at the table you may have a game group that really wants to lean into it and, and get themselves all terrified and, and jittery and you can have you know the changeling is changeling game but if they're playing it as genuine horror they're going to get that out of it and what you labeled it on the side of the box is not going to matter likewise you can say we're playing horror and if you never get around to it and you're just playing a pulp adventure in which you hunt vampires that sounds great he said having written that game but that shouldn't matter to anyone because what's happening at your table is what matters and you can vary uh, genre and theme and emotional impact at the table you'll probably be doing it within a scenario much less within a campaign yeah, I mean, the, the piece of advice I always give to any game is follow the player's enthusiasm. And if the player, if you, if you like, if it pitches a horror game, but the players are more into like it being a dark fantasy, I would just follow them. Next questioner started by observing that a key part of horror is about the unknown, uh, but horror games are also about investigation and revealing what is hidden, and wanted to know about striking a balance between those two things. So the secret about mystery in horror is that you should never have been looking into that mystery. <laughs> and when you get the answer, the answer is, is the horror. And so, so the mystery is only to lead them toward the horror. And they're not going to remember that the sequence of clues that they had to put together to get from point A to B to C to Cthulhu is not what they're going to remember. They're going to remember the creepy things along the way, but the mystery is not the main thing. The mystery is the road, and it's what you run into along the road uh, that matters and that delivers the palette of emotions that we uh, look for in horror. I'd also always try and leave like some things like, undiscovered. Like um, in Lovecraft's Shadow of Innsmouth, it starts off, you know, nothing about this town. By the end of it, you have like the town's entire layout, ge- geology, history... You have to go on there, but then he goes, "Aha!" But there's also this mystery down in the ocean, and hints at you know, hints at grand vistas down there. But it's always leave some other unknown to be discovered later on. Then we came to a, a perennial solid question that we always want to keep repeating the answer to, which is, "What guidelines do you have for a GM using safety tools, uh, particularly in horror?" Uh, and this was uh, from someone who's planning to run horror for the first time. I want to know what they needed to know about as opposed to generic fantasy. I would say that the X card is a really good, I mean, it's robust. It's probably had a million uses by now. And it's something that's intuitive and everyone gets it. And if you have lines and veils, that can be a little confusing. Is this a line or more of a veil situation? The X card, the simple stop, start, don't do that. That's very easy to communicate. And uh, we have the X card in, in the Fall of Delta Green game. It doesn't come up an awful lot, but when it does, it, it does what it's supposed to do on the, you know, on the box. So I would say the X card is probably your... I wouldn't say that you have a one-stop shop, and obviously every table is going to be different, and your degree of caring is going to be different. I would also say definitely if you're doing a horror, and definitely if this is a concern, do, do a session zero, and when you're making characters and telling them sort of the premise of the game... Uh, there's a game called Microscope that I absolutely recommend. It's terrific. And there's a part of Microscope when you're making up the, the, the game that you go around the room and everyone in the room, GM and players alike, 
gets to say a yes and a no. And yes is our thing we absolutely want to see, and no is a thing we do not want to see. And if you just have those yeses and nos before you've already thought up the campaign, that goes a long way to making your job easier as a GM. And, you know, again, don't that's not a substitute for the act card, but it's a good way to know, oh, we're not going to be endangering any children in this game. That's just a bridge too far for my player group. That's not going to happen. We're going to be... Everyone is going to be turning in their driver's license before they go into the haunted house, and that's just the way the world is. And that is a very useful thing because uh, in a horror game that has a mystery framework, which is we've established is most of them, an X card can cause you, the GM, a lot more thinking time to react and still maintain your mystery if suddenly you discover midway through the game that this is an al- this element that is key to my scenario turns out I can't use it now mm-hmm. and can I even make this make sense what's really going on now that I can't have this happening and so the more kind of advanced indication you could you know just ask people to just email you separately because often you know because these are touchy things for people they don't necessarily want to say to everybody at the table I don't want X in this, that is also triggering to people. Mm -hmm. So have them all contact you separately by email to say, let me know where your your hard no's are in terms of things that you can uh, do now. You know, in an extreme circumstance, you may have your players all rule out everything in the world of horror, uh, in which case, there is a point when you're running horror where you need to have people who want a horror game, and if the combined gestalt of the whole group is, you know, no, actually, we'd still rather be playing something different we're, because we're back to urban fantasy and we're back to urban <laughs> fantasy but very very nice urban <laughs> fantasy yeah. where you drink a lot of tea next we came to a question that was after my own heart which was how do you find the horror in a real place as absinthe and carcosa does with paris in 1895 for context absinthe and carcosa is a supplement that i worked on with the collage artist dean engelhart for the yellow king role-playing game which is a found artifact scrapbook of 1895 Paris and all the weird things that are going on in there. And so when you are researching a place, things jump out at you, and you're alert for stuff that in that case, you know, related to the Yellow King, or for Dreamhounds of Paris, where I was looking at Paris in the 30s, and and the lives of the Surrealists. Again, there are images and things that will jump out. Now, Paris, of course, is easy. It has the catacombs, but also there are normal places where you can situate horror, right? There's a botanical garden. Well, okay, there's got to be some sort of triffid issue with that. And so it's basically a, a matter of researching the place and looking for the sort of keywords and images that you're looking for that uh, inspire you. And typically they just sort of jump out at you. That Just by researching something with a horror turn of mind, that problem starts to solve itself. Car? Yeah, I mean, for Dracula dossier, often we need to like, find horror in fairly mundane <coughs> locations. Like, you've got like, some town that's mentioned in passing Dracula, we have to do like, a half page on that. There, I end up like, doing like, you know, Google searches for like, you know, this town plus serial killing, this town plus ghost, this town plus Cult. Just like basically dig around. There's often like some urban legend or strange use thing you can hang hat on, and really all you need is basically just a a hint of the unknown. That you can build something around, like a mysterious disappearance or a kidnapping or something. And then the last of the questions will get to the answers of this time around. Uh, what do you do when you discover in mid scenario that something intrinsic to it has triggered one of your players? They've hit the X card. You can't use it. What do you do? I mean, some players enjoy discovering their fear with you, right? It's not always a bad thing if you discover your player has a deathly fear of puppets. I had a player who 
confessed to me that he had a, a sort of a, not a paranoia, but a phobia of, of moths and butterflies in his face, those little creepy furry wings. And of course, they met the Mothman like two sessions later, because <laughs> what is he even going to try? But if he was genuinely phobic about it in a way that was not fun anymore, then, you know, you do the thing, they X card, and their character, I mean, worst case scenario, one of the great things about playing Cthulhu games, oh, you fainted. You're not going through that anymore. And then when you wake up, you have no memory of it because your mind erased that horrible trauma. And we move on. And if they're really wigged out, they can go you know, into another room while you finish out that bit with the rest of the players. Depending on exactly where you are in the story, maybe you can back it up and it's like, well, that was a thing. It was you know, like the shadow that moves past and then it's gone. You're going to get into a rhythm with your players that you're going to understand as you play what is scaring them good and what is scaring them hurtful. And obviously with a horror game, as Robin said, you want players who are scared good by as many things as possible because that feeds the energy of the table. And generally it is you know, a good idea to, de- to debrief and say, was that too far? Should we never have Mothman come back again? And then they will generally say you know, yes or no. It, it, it frightened me in the moment because I wasn't expecting it, but I'm cool if the Mothman comes back or they'll say, never do that again, Mothman killed my parents. And then you're like, well, I didn't know. Then that seems odd. Um, <laughs> Right, and, and in the instance where you discover without warning that an integral part of what you're doing is uh, seriously troubling to someone, or something that can happen to you is that another player at the table can, you know, well, interpret something in a way that you never intended. Like, there's a situation where, uh, you know, there's certain elements that I would never even put in a horror game, and I'm, we can all think what some of those were, yeah. and at one point a player went, oh, this is that. And no, it wasn't that, but it was still such an image to everybody that we just stopped and we didn't continue the scenario because it had already gone to a point where it just was unrecoverable. So sometimes the question, how do I recover from this, is the wrong question. But sometimes it's like, oh no, any attempt to make it clear that that wasn't the supposed to be going on, that's just that player thinking that, but it's not true, it's still just going to keep compounding. And so sometimes you really just do have to completely bail and, okay, that scenario just never happened. And we just cut it off, we stopped for the night, and then when we came back a week later, it was a completely different scenario. And that thing just, you know, that was a critical failure and it just went into the memory hole. Just on the cutting room floor. Yeah. Yeah. Delta Green Iconoclast, a campaign of horrors modern and ancient, brings a team of agents to a scene of terrors all too real. Mosul in 2016, held by the self-styled Islamic State in a reign of depraved brutality. From a small base at the Kirkuk airfield, the agents must research the horrors to come and prepare for a harrowing infiltration. ISIL fighters destroy mysterious artifacts. A Delta Green veteran goes rogue. Hidden myths permeate the Battle of Mosul. A demon god beckoned by a bloodthirsty cult. Plus terrifying supplementary material. Rules and guidelines for spying, crime, and backroom deals. New rituals. New tomes. And the dreadful details of a threat to suit all the evils of humanity. Available now in PDF. Or in glistening hardback.
The whirring of chronotons, the clacking of time gears, tell us that we're once more standing in proximity to Ken's time machine. This, of course, is the conveyance that his superiors at Time Incorporated used to send him back into history to bend, fold, spindle, and sometimes even uh, mutilate it. But this time around, it's time to uh, get out on the pitch. Hopefully, we'll uh, lead to something that isn't a zero-zero tie, because beloved backer Neil Barnes says... Depending on the cue, we might need a time machine to get this in while it's topical. Uh, but I think that this is close enough in our memories that this still uh, counts as as topical as we get on this show. Could Ken provide Time Incorporated's approvals board an outline on how to make FIFA not terrible? <laughs> and I think the short answer, explode FIFA completely the yeah. moment that sports marketing begins. Because FIFA is not an organization that became corrupt over time no, <laughs> and <laughs> was strayed from its mission. Its mission all the time has been to funnel money into the hands of a small number of rentiers who are lucky enough to have bellied up to the trough. Well, I mean, that's mostly true. For a while, FIFA believed in amateur athletics and there was no global marketing because there was no global mass media. So sort of by accident, early FIFA was you know, just lovers of amateur sport trying to put international play together. And right. that Be- Before there was money in sport, you're right. FIFA yes. was a completely different animal. Yeah, but FIFA's never been good at that either. It founded in 1904, and in FIFA's quasi-defense, World War One and Two had a lot to do with their screw-ups, but they managed to drive what are called the the British Four teams out of FIFA, over World War One, They can't put together a World Cup until 1930. They give it to Uruguay to host. And Uruguay is far, and no one can afford to go. So the head of FIFA at the time has to sort of stump up a desperate attempt to get a few European teams to go play in Montevideo. Right, because international air travel, 1930, not quite online. No, they were on boats, but they didn't like it, and it was right after the Depression. It was a disaster. Then the next World Cup was held in, uh, and everyone who's worried that uh, Gutter represents some new downside for the World Cup, nope, held in Mussolini's Italy in 1934 and is a giant backstage for fascism. They then have World War II, blissfully removed soccer from the world, a a rare silver lining of World War II, but there we are. In uh, the new post-war, there is a a lengthy discussion as to, will the British rejoin FIFA? They finally do. The two heads of FIFA immediately die in short order, and then a fellow who's a former referee, soccer referee in Britain named Sir Stanley Roos, becomes president of FIFA, and his big project, Robin, is to make sure that South Africa can field an apartheid soccer team. And he goes so far as to try and create a league that's just for South Africa and Rhodesia, since none of the other African or Asian teams want to be in a league with an apartheid team. That goes over about as well as you'd think. And so that's his sort of, you know, goal. And thanks right. to... And so, and so that sets up a dynamic where all of the other challengers seeking power have followed since then which is to use social justice arguments to become the people at the trough. Right, to become much worse than the legitimate straight-up racist. So the next guy uses, as you point out, the apartheid scandal to vote Sir Stanley Roos out. This guy's name is Joao de Havilange. He's Brazilian. He becomes president of FIFA in 1974. He is super mobbed up. 
He is very corrupt, and he begins the sort of big expansion of FIFA with corporate sponsorships and also begins taking gigantic bribes for the by now actually valuable television and radio rights to broadcast the World Cup and to broadcast other FIFA events. And and so this is the beginning of modern FIFA, which is, as I said, is an organization to distribute corrupt money. And that's when a guy named Horst Dassler from Adidas or as we call it in North America, Adidas, Adidas. because we think, I guess there's more than one Adidas, but that's that's not how it's pronounced, apparently. But anyway, he's the one who invents giant sponsorship money. And I don't know if that's like he's following other sports or if this he's an innovator across the board, but he's the one who says, I bet we can get Coca-Cola to give us a whole bunch of money. And we'll give some of it to players and and other sports organizations and a lot of it to ourselves Mm -hmm. and a lot of it to FIFA. And Dassler, uh, before you are like, well, he's just trying to give money to the to the new regime. He was trying to get the same deal with Sir Stanley Roos. And Roos was actually pushing back, saying amateurism is important in sport. We can't taint it with a big boatload of filthy money. But who doesn't love apartheid? So. It's mixed messages all the way down. But Dassler switches sides, comes into Havelange and says, I happen to have this bucket of money. Where do you want it? And a great friendship is born. The 1978 World Cup is held in Argentina under the military junta, and they fix the matches there. It is pretty clear. And a member of the junta, Admiral Carlos Lacoste, legitimately becomes vice president of FIFA in 1982, and by legitimately, I mean corruptly, but he does. Uh, this is like you mean if, straight up becomes. This is like if the guy who's the head of the Wagner Group was also vice president of FIFA, and you know what? I didn't check that he's not. <laughs> so uh, this is FIFA until 1988, and you're thinking, well, surely the guy after him is going to be better. <laughs> no, ho, ho. Oh, that guy is Sepp Blatter, who even non-soccer caring about me knew about at the time as a Blofeldian monster of international corruption. He is literally removed from office by an indictment in a Swiss court. This is as far as he has gotten. So he's also part of the match fixing in the 2010 World Cup in South Africa, the 2018 World Cup held, of course, in Putin's Russia, speaking of show places for fascism, and 2022 World Cup with, um, they thought, let's mix in some slavery. Let's throw that back into the mix. Right. At least we don't have apartheid, though. Although, it, in in Blatter's defense, uh, <laughs> he actually was not advocating Qatar. He wanted it to go to the U.S. because he was looking for balance of reputation after Russia. I think he was <laughs> perfectly happy with the Russia part. But he was part of the group trying to sort of legitimize things. But by this point, there were enough other board members with enough open pockets that he got outmaneuvered. However, of course, once that decision came down, he defended it with all of his now weird elfin gnome charms. If you want more background on this, the Netflix four-part documentary FIFA Uncovered is very strong on all of this. And the thing that really shows you the hubris of FIFA culture is that everybody who's still alive, who the documentary is exposing and lambasting, agrees to a talking head interview. They're all there, including Blatter himself, very much so, uh, because they all still think they are right and can argue their case and continue to put it over on people. That they can get away with it because what's the other choice? No soccer. (laughs) Hands raised all across the United States. 
So fixing FIFA does sound at some point like, you know, fixing Sparta, which you'll remember I fixed with an earthquake that destroyed it. Right. You, you need to invent another person to not be Stanley Rouse or Zhao de Havilland. Right. Well, in the actual world where I am not stuck in Belgium at FIFA meetings for a hundred years, subjective, I figured out another way. There is a crusading journalist who said correctly that one of the troubles with FIFA is the part of it that actually does the arranging of matches is the same group that siphons up all this giant amount of money. So they have a obvious conflict of interest. So what I, here's my proposal to Time Incorporated. I take a big old dossier full of Havalanches, crimes and misdemeanors, lots of signed, yes, Brazilian mob, I would love to take money from you, love Joao type stuff. And I take it and I give that to Pele. Now, Pele, of course, the greatest soccer player ever, a god to all Brazil, was buddies with Havalange, or at least allowed himself to be used by Havalange to promote Havalange's candidacy and to promote FIFA, but famously a believer in fair play, believer in honest sport, generally not a monster of corruption. So you go to Pele with this dossier. You say, this is what Havalange is up to. We would like you to publicly break with him and demand the creation with you as the head of an independent soccer league or association that does all the stuff FIFA is supposed to do, which is to say, organize play, investigate allegations of corruption, tie them in with, you know, a a big Swiss accounting firm, tie them in with Interpol if you need to, you know, it can be headquarters in, you know, Switzerland or in Brazil, wherever Pele would like it to be headquartered. U.S. soccer is headquartered in Chicago, just saying Pele, you were in New York, of course you hated it, but If you can get Pele to sign on and use his gigantic global prominence to force FIFA to allow this to happen and national soccer teams just for the purposes of not looking like giant corrupt monsters would hopefully join Team Pele, then FIFA can just roll around in the filth with Adidas and Coke all they want and the actual matches will be clean, and then you can start using their legal standing to investigate corruption in these sorts of deals where there's kickbacks, you know, you bribe Trinidad and Tobago to vote for you on the FIFA board, but you have to claw back the bribery. Right. And by that, you don't mean that you're not bribing the state of Trinidad and Tobago, you're bribing the particular dude who happens to have grabbed that seat as the head of soccer in that place. So it's not not even on that level. Right. Yeah. Yeah. The national bribery was mostly like Russia trying to get the um, the, uh, the national bribes are outflowing mm -hmm. and the various local soccer potentates are are receiving the bribes. Right. But my point is that if an organization founded and headed by Pele has a large and angry Swiss or Mormon, I mean, you, you, you ideally you find someone who cares nothing about soccer. So if there's a Utah accounting firm, maybe they should be doing it, you know, who just follows the money and then they, you know, recommend people be arrested for crimes and misdemeanors. I'm not saying it would fix it. I'm not saying it would re- reduce it to the, the purity of insert actually pure sports league, but I'm saying that you would take it from sewer of corruption down to sort of, you know, EPA super fund of corruption. Right. Well, and the advantage here is you don't have to invent Pele. He exists. 
He exists, and he's glorious. Right. Well, that sounds great. Now, I guess there's there's not a ton of gameability around this. You can certainly have... I would, however, be a lot of fun to have a sort of murder mystery, uh, even perhaps with a some sort of nerd trope thing on top of that at a FIFA meeting where the next host is being chosen. And uh, if somebody bumps off uh, one of these uh, guys, there's all kinds of different suspects for that. So that would well, be... Also, you've got international intrigue, jet setting, physical specimens at the peak of their ability, you know, no doubt blood doping and other sort of chicanery going on. This uh, you sounds can have like, a heist during uh, yeah. one of the games, maybe. This during... sounds like a great backdrop for a Knights Black Agents, either yep. in the modern era or a cool 70s Knights Black Agents, if you wanted to, with, um, uh, you know, the, the rise of this giant advertising empire and all this new money flooding in. Well, you know, what is this except metaphorically the vampirism of Adidas, Nazi shoe company Adidas, coming in and trying to drain the pure and beautiful lifeblood of soccer? He said, not at all ironically. Well, I think, Ken, once you warm up with FIFA, after that, you can do the International Olympic Committee. Exactly. Well, there <laughs> there we are talking about neutron bombs as the first resort. Well, on that note, I think, uh, Ken, you can pronounce uh, your chronological duties uh, done and our duties as uh, hosts on this here podcast done, but only until next week. Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Atlas Games. Pelgrane Press. Osphagelm. Arc Dream. Dark Tower. And Pro Fantasy Software. Music, as always, is by James Semple. Audio editing by Rob Borges. Support our Patreon at patreon.com backslash Ken and Robin. Prevent the scourge of underfunding from beating us one to nil by waving a scarf alongside such backers as Peter Nix, Philip Masters, Andrea Coletta, Will Ferguson, and Fifi Pyatt, and Derek McMullen. Wear this show or drink it from a mug with Ken and Robin merch at tpublic.com slash user slash Ken Robin. Check out our new classic design, Unicorn with a Better Armor Class. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time, and once again, we will talk about stuff.